We're not consciously aware of much of what drives our decision-making. And there's a lot of research that backs this up. About 95% of our thoughts, emotions, and learnings happen on a subconscious level. And oftentimes, after we take an action, if somebody asks us why we did that action, we don't do it intentionally, but we make up a story. We make up a narrative that sort of fit our quote-unquote identity. And basically what behavioral science does is it helps us understand what the users aren't telling us. On this episode of the Creator Community, we'll meet Nate Andorsky, a lifelong entrepreneur who through a series of iterations built a method to unlock the power of behavioral science to deliver more innovative and impactful product design for a wide range of companies, including the Fortune 50. We'll hear about Nate's moment of awakening that led him to this key discovery, how he integrated his findings into his company, and the steps he took to lead this significant strategy pivot. We'll also learn the key elements of behavioral science, the common pitfalls of product design, and what the future holds for this innovative approach. And we'll learn how all of this led to his first book, Decoding the Why, which has been critical to the explosive growth of his business. Check out the show. Welcome to the Creator Community. This is a podcast from book publisher New Degree Press, or NDP. I'm your host, John Saunders. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. This year, NDP will cross over 1,500 published authors from six continents and is, and is the publishing arm of Manuscripts, Inc. This enterprise earned the 293rd spot on the Inc. 5000 list last year. This is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. This is a special episode, episode five of the NDP alumni series. Authors that went through the program in the last couple of years were checking in with them to learn about how their book journeys have impacted their lives and careers and see what they've been up to since bringing their books to the world. Today, I have with me, Nate Andorsky. Nate is an entrepreneur who uses behavioral science to build digital strategies and technology for today's most innovative companies and nonprofits. He believes the key to unlocking the potential of technology lies within our understanding of the psychological factors that drive human decision-making. By combining scientific findings with outside-the-box thinking, he helps turn human understanding into business advantages. As the CEO of Creative Science, he leads a team focused on this mission. He is a frequent international speaker, has been featured in Forbes, Inc. Magazine, and Huffington Post, and his team's work has earned accolades from Fast Company and TopNonprofits.com. He is also the author of an Amazon bestseller, Decoding the Why, How Behavioral Science is Driving the Next Generation of Product Design. Prior to creative science, he was a team member at the Startup America Partnership, an organization led by Steve Case to help build entrepreneurial communities throughout the U.S. He geeks out about the intersection of human behavior and the ways in which it can improve human outcomes. Nate, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm really excited to be here. Pleasure to have you. What an extraordinary background you have with so many entrepreneurship threads along the way. Before we jump into the book and your story, let's learn a little bit more about your entrepreneurship journey. How did you end up being a founder of a company? It's a great question. So I've had entrepreneurship in my blood since I can remember. I've been dabbling in entrepreneurial related endeavors since I was kind of consciously aware of my existence. The first one actually was in high school. I had launched and started an eBay trading assistant business, which was basically finding people's junk and selling them, selling it on, for them on eBay and taking a cut of what it would sell for. And I started selling out 
actual junk, right? People's old stereos and phones laying around their house to eventually I sold a few cars on eBay. Wow. And that was my first sort of taste of the entrepreneurship journey. But uh, my current company, Creative Science, was founded about almost, well, 10 years ago in 2013. And it was originally started as just a sort of web design development agency. And about three or four years ago, we made this I wouldn't even say pivot because it wasn't a complete shift in the work that we do, but it definitely was a significant shift, really focusing on product design using behavioral science, which is a lot of what my book gets into. What do you think, where did that pivot come from as you built this company out and you've had this entrepreneurial mindset? One of the other stories I found fascinating in your LinkedIn profile, but might be a thread here is right this cleaning service you offered in college. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. So you, you find the, you have this really interesting ability from what I can gather of finding needs from the marketplace and delivering them and making life simple for people. The, the dorm cleaning, eBay, and now of course, behavioral science. But what was that What was that a theme or what was the idea that made you make that pivot? Yeah, so I, I think I think that that's spot on is just finding opportunities where they exist in the market and finding ways to, to capitalize on them. I mean, specifically with the behavioral science piece, it's actually interesting. So my background from high school through college is in what I would refer to as sort of technology and entrepreneurship and like core product design. So helping build and imagine web and mobile apps. And it was 2000, I think it was like 2015 or 16, I was reading a book called Nudge. And if you're familiar with behavioral economics, you've heard of Nudge. It's sort of like the key mark book that talks about behavioral economics. It was one of the first books to quote unquote go viral and sort of spread this methodology and ideas. And what it talks about, it's by Richard Thaler and basically talks about the idea of know, what impacts our decision-making that we're not consciously aware of, right? And it was it was a sort of groundbreaking book for a lot of folks to say, oh, I'm actually not really consciously aware of much of what drives my decision-making. And I was reading through it and I was thinking to myself, I was like, a lot of the concepts and the key ideas in the book, if you build products, if you're a UX designer, UI designer, you, you, you kind of know them, like you've stumbled upon them like by accident, right? What was interesting was it was just scratching the surface. There was a whole layer deeper here of really getting into understanding what drives human behavior. And I thought to myself, I was like, okay, there must be a lot of companies that are taking all this amazing academic literature in regards to what drives human behavior and incorporating into the way they think about and build products. And I did some digging and sure enough, there really wasn't. There was this huge gap that exists between, it still does today, between academia and the applied side. And that's when I began to sort of kind of dig in and really understand, well, how can my company, how can I kind of fill this gap that exists between what drives human behavior and the way that we think about and building products? That's such a fascinating story. And I love the fact that, you know, right, we, we often talk about reading as being something we should all do and, you know, continue to learn and grow from. And what an incredible example. Sounds like a thank you note to Richard Taylor is in order here. I'm just going to put it out there. You haven't sent it yet. Yes. Uh, if he's listening, thank you, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So you read this book. It helped you identify a gap. You saw that it didn't yeah. exist in the marketplace. So where did you go from there with this idea? You know, it, How did it, you bring it, this it, to your business? Yeah. And it's fascinating because one of my employees was actually asking me about this the other week. She she joined about a year or so ago. She's like, look at the history. And I think a lot of people look at entrepreneurship and think of entrepreneurs and they're like, oh, they sit in this, this boardroom and they come up with these grand ideas and then they build a strategy and they deploy them. In reality, it actually happens backwards, right? So the first thing that I started to do is I started just to, to basically talk about these concepts and ideas on LinkedIn, in my email marketing, and with new clients, right? We were pitching new clients. I started to integrate this into some of their sales material, et cetera, because at the end of the day, I'm running a business and I can have the greatest idea in the world, but if no one wants to buy it, you can't build a business around it, right? And then when I saw there was a lot of interest from our clients about this, and I said, oh, I must be onto something. And I really just started getting my hands dirty. I started kind of reinventing and reimagining our process in with integrating all this behavioral science theories and ideas and concepts and just 
continue to kind of chuck away at it and see what worked and what didn't work, et cetera. So there's some level of experimentation, iteration, you identified a gap, but weren't exactly sure what it was, but sort of exactly. chipping away at it. How did you first bring this concept to your team? Or did you kind of do this in a vacuum before you brought it to your team? Because of course, bringing change, this was a pretty radical shift to your organization, was it not? Yeah, that's another great question. I, you know, there's, there's sort of two components to this. I have two partners and basically getting them to get buy-in in terms of like, this is the direction that we should have ahead as a company. And what I found was not that they were ever against it. They were always very for it. But what really was the selling point was bringing them into sales calls and hearing our client's reaction to what I was putting forward, right? Because it's one thing to try to convince them myself is this is the direction we should go. But if they say, oh, we're actually hearing this from the market, it's a whole other story. And then that was on that sort of buy-in from my partner side. And then from the team side, I began to identify the gaps that we had from a staffing standpoint and figure out, okay, what are the individuals that we need to bring on board and need to hire to fill these gaps, to be able to deliver on these promises? And so we began to recruit like people who actually had academic experience in behavioral science, et cetera, and build out the team as such. So you had some, so you identified a a product need or demand from the customer, if you will, Brought mm-hmm. your team members and your partners to help hear this story. So not, don't just take my word for it here, right? Like here's our customers, right. our prospects telling us that they want this and then finding gaps in the team to help build it out and creating this new structure. Where do you go to start building the, uh, finding those people to build, to fill these gaps <laughs> in the team? That's a great question. And one that we we're continuing to, in a very good struggle with, it's interesting because the whole question is you kind of need two key components here when you build the team. Actually really great. You need people who can design and build products. You need people who can do research, and then you need people that have experience in behavioral science, right? So the question then becomes, do we hire behavioral scientists and sort of train them in the product design and UX side, or do you hire product designers and UX designers and train them in the behavioral science side? And the field isn't advanced enough where there are people, there, there are a few, but there are very few people who are trained as like product designers and behavioral scientists. So we began to build out the team and really understand what are those key roles that we need. And then once we have them, how do you how do you cross-train individuals on the other competencies that they don't they don't have to make up the team? That is really interesting because it's really a right and a left brain exercise here is what I'm hearing, right? And somehow you yes. need to cross this gap. So do they train each other? Do you bring an external person to do that? Or how do you bridge that gap? We train, we train them ourselves. So we try to give them a, a sort of crash course in behavioral science product design to, to get them up to speed. And it's interesting too, because product designers, for example, and behavioral scientists, like they come at the same challenge from very different angles. So you have to kind of, I think first and foremost, give them a glance into the the other's world and their background in terms of what they do and don't know. So they can they can bridge those gaps because sometimes they're speaking different languages, which can be a bit of a challenge. And you know, it, it makes me think of what we often talk about in the author coaching universe, which is you have to sort of collect the dots before we can connect the dots. And it sounds like you've done a lot of dot collecting and then you found ways to connect them very, very intentionally with the team. That is brilliant. Yeah. So we've we've tiptoed around this idea of behavioral science and kind of how the business came to be. What were you doing before the behavioral science element of your business? Within creative science or just like within, with that? your company, yes. Yeah. So we were primarily in the nonprofit space. We still do work in the nonprofit space, but we've expanded outside of it. And we were building just sort of basic website overhauls, right? So a nonprofit come to us and they say, hey, like we want to rebuild our website and we would go in and, and rebuild it from the ground up. So it was similar work to what we're doing now, but definitely we're focused more now on what I would refer to as like products, right? So web and mobile apps. And then we're also working in the health finance education space in addition to the social impact space. 
Gotcha. And then you had this revelation about this new demand from customers around this behavioral element to product design. So tell us a little bit about, for those who don't know what behavioral science is, Nate, what, what is it and what should we know about it? Yes. So the, the concept that we're bringing to the table is a lot of times when you're building web and mobile apps and you're doing building a new product, right? You have an idea for, for an app, for example, and you go out and you do all this customer and user research. And your users say, hey, listen, if you build these features into your product, if you build this type of app, I'm going to use it 100%. Then you build it and then you deploy it and you can't get traction, right? And this is typically where people run in circles. And the reason is we're not consciously aware of much of what drives our decision-making. And there's a lot of research that backs this up about 95% of our thoughts, emotions, and learnings happen on a subconscious level. And oftentimes, after we take an action, if somebody asks us why we did that action, we don't do it intentionally, but we make up a story. We make up a narrative to sort of fit our quote-unquote identity. And basically what behavioral science does is it helps us understand what the users aren't telling us, right? So what are all the pieces that are going in and influencing the way that they're making decisions or interacting with a mobile app that they can't articulate? And that's sort of the hidden piece here. We use this framework of the say, do I data. And basically the say data is anything that our users tell us, right? It could be focus groups. It could be interviews, anything that they're saying, this is why I'll use your app. And there's the do data. That's the actual analytics, right? So we're watching the back end, the heat maps, the Google analytics and saying, hey, this is interesting. Our users said that if we deployed this feature, they would use it, but they're not using it. There's a disconnect between the say data and the do data. They say one thing and they do something completely different. And that's where the behavioral science comes in. So it does two things. It helps us understand hey, John, you said that, listen, if I signed up for this app, I'm going to exercise every single week and then three weeks into it, you're not using the app anymore, right? The disconnect between the say and the, day, the do data. And then it also gives us an understanding or what are some ideas and what are some concepts that we can build into that app that, John, you would never even be able to tell us, right? So we have a whole different playbook that we're working with. And to date, a lot of technology, the big question around technology has always been how can we build bigger, faster, better technology, right? But there's a whole side of this is really understanding from a psychological standpoint, how do you really improve it from a human experience standpoint? There's a lot of opportunity there that hasn't been tapped yet. And we're looking at the intersection of the two of those. That is kind of mind blowing to me. I'm not going to lie, having never worked in behavioral science and certainly not in the data and the technology behind it. When you think about behaviors overall, this concept of say and do, right? Those are two key elements. What are some other key drivers of our behaviors? Like what gets us out of bed and makes us do things? Yeah, this is a big debate in this space and the way that we think about psychology and behavioral science. So behavioral science basically says there's a lot of things going on in our environment that are going to influence our behavior, right? I'll give you a perfect example. There was a company that's actually mentioned in my book. It was called Talented, but basically the idea was you were supposed to sign up for this app and you could learn new skills as an employee. And they were having a really hard time getting anyone to not only consume the content, but you were supposed to actually perform the skill to prove that you were actually consuming the content. And they tried all these different things. They would give them like gift cards. They would give them like raises and bonuses. Nothing was working. And then they said, okay, well, like, let's think about what drives behavior. Like, usually you have to change the environment. And they go, okay, that's really interesting. Why don't we try this? You sign up for the app. We're going to put you in a cohort of 10 people, right? And sure enough, usually what happened was there was one or two people within that cohort that were off to like a really, really fast start. And after a week, they would just send a simple message out to everyone. They'd say, hey, John, thanks for signing up for the app. You're doing great. Congratulations to Carol and Tim. You're off to a, first, a great start. You've already completed two of the lessons. And what that did was that shifted the norms of the pace that people should be performing at without saying, hey, John, you're behind. You need to catch up. And they found out that it was a really effective intervention. So like one of the key concepts with behavioral science is 
we take cues from our environment, whether that's what's around us or other people around us for what we should be doing is one of the key concepts there. That is mind blowing and something I spent a lot of time thinking about as a leader. I, I was a leader on Wall Street for many years and the old norms were, let's put up you know, a sort of a, running a sales group, but let's put up a, a, a billboard to say, hey, here's who's winning and here's the losers basically, right? You're at the bottom yes. of the list, top of the list or in the middle. And my thing was always like, let's showcase what excellence looks like, right? And right. many times the mindset was, let's let's showcase the people that are not, you know, sort of it, it, almost like a, a sort of shame, <laughs> like a shame award of sorts. And, and in fact, your data would suggest that, yes, let's celebrate awesome and show people what that looks like because yeah. they're going to follow that behavior. We're very much influenced by that, that type of behavior. That's incredible. And uh, to that point too, John, just a, a quick thing there, which I think is fascinating. There's a lot to be led from game design too. As you know, like I'm sure most folks here have probably played Mario Kart. And in Mario Kart, one of the concepts they use is something called dynamic game balancing. And the idea basically is if you're competing against other people and you're too far ahead or too far behind, you can you give up, right? You're like, well, I'm kind of quote unquote out of the race, right? And the game dynamically adjusts based on what position you are in Mario Kart. So if you're ever behind, all of a sudden you'll notice the last lap, you get all these power-ups, you get like mushrooms and bananas and stuff. And there's always this feeling that you can actually get first place, even if you're the last lap. And it does that intentionally. It dynamically balances the game. And to your point about leaderboards, it's a perfect example. A lot of times apps, they want to gamify an experience. So like, well, let's put competition here. Let's put leaderboards. But to your point, you know, if you're in first or second, it can be motivating. But like, if you're not in first or second, if you're in third or fourth, or you're just so far behind, you're just like, what's even the point? Like, I'm not going to try to hit my sales numbers this month because there's no way I can hit my sales numbers, right? So I'm going to... I'm going to pack it in. I'm going to wait till next month. Wow. And you really hit home with me with Mario Kart because my eight-year-old constantly beats me in that game whenever we yeah. uh, get, on, <laughs> get on this system and play it and then ridicules me for it, which is great. So you know, you, you talked a little bit about how data is flawed in this space. Can we dig a bit more into why and how that is in, in, from your vantage point? Yeah, I think that there's a heavy reliance on gaining insights by, tell, by asking people, um, what they think. And we're just really, really poor at a, explaining why we did something. And we're really bad at predicting what we'll do in the future, which is why surveys, for example, are typically not that you can't use them as an input, but they're typically not very accurate. And that's where a lot of these insights come from. And then the other piece is more of like what I call the do data, right? And that's the whole piece of data science and machine learning. And it's really helpful. But one of the challenges with data science, which we're seeing is it gives you a bunch of data and it tells you what people are doing, but you don't really know why, right? And without knowing why, it becomes difficult to figure out, okay, what are the solutions that I can deploy to solve those types of challenges? So what have you learned about the why through your work and research? Well, a lot of what we do runs contrary to what we would believe we would do. And also just environment plays a really, really big role in in this you know you think about it if you've ever done like leadership training for example or done classes around sort of communication your communication skills right you learn all these best practices of how you should communicate with whether it's your partner your employee or your boss right but in the heat of the moment all those skills go out the window right because you're like in a very sort of heightened emotional state your frontal cortex isn't running the show your amygdala is running the show that controls more of our emotional response and i think that's a perfect example of it's not a one-size-fits-all right it depends on sort of what state you're in, what emotional state you're in, and also like who you're surrounded by. Back to that sort of cohort example, right? Can be a big driver of human behavior is probably one of the key insights that we've learned. That 
depending on sort of what state you're in, it's going to depend on how you react to it. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. And also what other people are doing around you, right? Like what's the quote unquote norm for how you would act, right? If you think about this, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast last week and they were talking about a lot of rituals in a religious setting, right? And it's interesting because like in a religious setting, these rituals are totally norm. Right. But if you started doing those out in the open, like on the middle of the street, people are like, oh my God. Right. So like the environment can change such that certain things are acceptable and not acceptable. And you would you will adhere or not adhere to those just depending on who you're surrounded by and what sort of context you're in. You know, I love this idea. We live sort of in different facets of our lives, right? Kind of our right. normal life, and then we hit into these heated moments and it, our, our thoughts can change. And it's fascinating when I think about some of my own executive coaching clients when I see confusion amongst their company. Like they aren't setting the example, right? They aren't right. leading and they aren't sharing with people what are the key elements we need to do here to make this happen. So it's fascinating. Right. I can't help but wonder, Nate, if you aren't sort of over scrutinized by your own team based on the work that you do in evaluating other people, does that does that lens ever get turned inward? Sometimes it does, you know, but I, I think that what we always talk about in our space is that like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility is that the idea that it's it's our responsibilities with this methodology and approach is that you're using it to, as I say, improve human outcomes in whatever capacity you want. Because I mean, you can use it to try to sell kids cigarettes too, right? But that's, that's not a very moral thing to do. And it's your responsibility not to do that. Right. And of course, Jewel is in the news this week on this, mm -hmm. very, this very subject. So when you think about taking all this work you've done around behavioral science and now tying it to product launches, what are some of the mistakes and, and, and good things you see people do with launching new products? And yeah. Science? So two of the key things we see a lot of companies do is uh, put in a feature because they heard about it or they think it sounds cool, right? They use the Uber app last week and the Uber app has this really neat feature. And then they say, oh, this is really interesting. We should use this in our app, right? So everyone's sort of like looking at each other, I would say borrowing features, right? Without under any understanding of like, A, is it actually effective? And then B, is it driving the behavior that I want to drive? We call it sort of the echo chamber, right? And a lot of companies, you would be surprised, don't do a lot of testing and validation of new features, right? There is the exception, like your Facebook, your Google's, what I would refer to as things they do, but like those are sort of the outliers, right? So we see a lot of people sort of borrowing features. And then the, the second thing is really not understanding the behavior that you want to drive is a really, really key insight. And then what types of concepts can drive that behavior, right? So back to my example about talented and the sort of the cohort, like the behavior that you're trying to drive is engagement in the content, right? And the question then becomes, well, how do you drive that behavior? There's multiple ways to drive that behavior. And then that understanding drives the features that you would deploy to drive that behavior, right? So you're, you're starting behavior first and then feature rather than feature first and then seeing if you can drive that behavior. I mean, it sounds so simple when you lay it out there as such, but as you've seen over the years, right? So yeah. many people sort of chasing the new shiny penny is one of my favorite people uh, says, Jose Perez, technology can make stupid happen at the speed of light is how he likes to play <laughs> that, right? And we can sort of see this new technology and think, oh, if we throw money at that, you know, that'll be our, our next and thing. And I think you're spot on there, John. Like a lot of problems aren't, they're not technical problems. Like they're, they're people problems and technology helps scale that, right? But you, you don't solve the problem by throwing more technology at it. You solve the problem by by figuring out how to change the behavior. And then you can use technology to scale that. A lot of times people put that like, you know, I, I can't get these people, I can't get my customers to save more money. Well, let's build an app, right? Well, if you can't do it without an app, like I don't know how much an app, an app can help scale that and automate it and reach more people, but you still have the problem of getting people to save a lot of money. 
And what's fascinating is like a, a lot of this exists in the academic literature. Like it, it is there, right? It's just, it's very dense. It takes a lot of time to sort of sift through it. But if John, if you came to me tomorrow and you said, hey, listen, I want to I want to start an app that's going to help low-income individuals save more money. And you're like, I'm going to gamify it. I would say, John, spend two weeks, find all the academic literature that talks about how to nudge people to save more money first, and then come back to me and start to, to talk to me about like potential concepts or ideas for this app. It sounds so simple. And yet so many people don't do it that way. So you had an example, I think from your book around an insurance company that found a really creative mm -hmm. way to apply behavioral science. What was the story there? Yeah, so it's the name of the company is Lemonade. I am a, I am a policyholder and a sh I'm actually a shareholder too. And they are looking to sort of reinvent the insurance industry. And one of the things that Dan Ariely, who's their chief behavioral science officer, talks about is that one of their goals is to reduce the number of fraudulent claims that come through their system. And most companies, when they look at this problem, they say, okay, if we need to reduce fraudulent claims, well, we need to make a really robust process to investigate every claim that comes in and interview people and make them fill out forms and let's get sophisticated. Maybe we've a machine learning algorithm that can predict which claims could be fraudulent. And that's part of the, the question, but he said, okay, why are we seeing fraudulent claims? Like, that's the tip of the iceberg. Well, it's because there's a broken system of trust, right? In a utopian society, John, if everybody was trustworthy, nobody would file a fraudulent claim. Obviously, ideal state, that's not possible, right? But how can we move further towards that? And they said, okay, let's figure out how we can build a system of trust. So when you sign up for Lemonade, one of the things that you do is you select a nonprofit that you want to support. Every single month, the company pays out claims, collects premiums, fixed amount of profit, and then a percentage of the excess gets donated to your nonprofit on your behalf. But what's interesting about this is it sets up this interesting dynamic where if you're going to file a claim and it might be fraudulent, you're going to think twice because if you file a fraudulent claim, you're no longer stealing from an insurance company, which a lot of people can rationalize as, well, insurance is evil. We can steal from them, right? But you're indirectly stealing from a charity that you support, right? And Daniel Riali talks about this. You're, you're changing it from a two-player game to a three-player game. And then they have another, a couple other really Brilliant. interesting nudges that when you file a claim, one of the things that you do actually is you take a video of yourself talking about your claim. And customers say, oh, this is amazing. It's so much easier than having to fill out these forms, which is true. But one of the things that we know from behavioral science is that we're less likely to lie on video when we can see ourselves than we are in a form, right? So there's all these little behavioral science nudges built into the whole product, really the business, to try to reduce the likelihood that people are going to file fraudulent claims. And you can see that the idea of the charity aspect, right? You're not going to get that from your customers. They're not going to be like, well, I'm going to also donate to a charity. The only way that you can come up with that is understanding what's driving the behavior and then figuring out those concepts to integrate into the app. I mean, how could you possibly submit a fraudulent claim if you're donating money to like, you know, Leadership America or something like this, right? Like, right. let's help kids be good ethical leaders. I'm just going to steal to donate to them. <laughs> right. That's right. incredible. And then you said they have to submit a video of their claim, right? So they have to record online, like this is what happened to my, my car accident or whatever. And they have to say it out loud. Exactly. I mean, holy cow. Have they, have you done any work with them yet? You said you're a customer and a shareholder. Have they hired? I'm, we have not done any work with them yet. Hopefully soon though, if anyone from Lemonade's listening. So, you know, there's all these incredible stories about there about how to apply this. If I'm sitting here and I've never thought about behavioral science before, Nate, and I'm a, I own a company and I'm thinking about this and I've run into some of these hurdles you talked about and maybe found myself stuck, where do I even start with this and start to apply it's, behavioral science to my company? Yeah. I mean, I, I will say this. And when I talk about, well, first of all, read my book, obviously. I think one of the best things that you can do is 
if you're coming up with a new product or a feature idea, take some time and just do a lit review. Like go into the academic literature, do a Google search and just figure out what else is out there and been tried that helps solve the challenge that you're trying to, right? So that's the first thing you can do. And then come up with your ideas or your features based on that academic literature. And then also if you come up with a feature idea that's just out in space, right? Try to figure out what is the behavioral science that's driving that and what could make it successful or not successful. And then the other thing I would say is you need to split test, right? So let's say, John, you come to me and say, listen, I want to I want to create an app that's going to help people save more money. You look at the academic literature and you find out that there's this whole idea of loss aversion, hyperbolic discounting, blah, blah, blah. And you say, okay, one of the techniques I'm going to use based on the academic literature is I'm going to ask people to commit to save money 30 days from today rather than today. Like that's one of your concepts. Then you come up with another concept, right? And I would take those and I would split test them. You know, you have 200 users, give half of them to 100 users, the other half to 100 users. And then based on engagement rates, you can begin to say, oh, this one's working and this is not working and continue to test and iterate from there. The old A-B split test. I love it. And it's such a yeah. powerful exercise because if you have a thesis and somebody else has another inside your company, well, let's try them both and keep it a low cost venture for a little while till we figure out what's really, really taking hold. Mm-hmm. I love that. One of the other things you talked about in your book, and we'll, we'll dig into that more in a minute here, is this intention action gap. Can you talk a little bit about why this happens and how the heck do you deal with this? Yes. And it goes back to the conversation we had about sort of emotions. The intention of action gap is basically saying that uh, I intend to do something and then I don't follow through on the action, right? So I'm John, I'm sitting here, I said, I'm going to save more money. And then you don't save more money. There's a lot of reasons why this, this happens. One of the reasons is we don't really understand the emotional state that we're going to be in when we're going to take the action. Right. So for example, I, you know, I wake up on New Year's day and I say that, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to work out every single day. And then I find myself 30 days not going to the gym because when it comes time to actually work out, I'm tired, I'm hungry, et cetera. There's also a really other fascinating concept around the intentional intention action gap and this idea of the future self that I find like mind blowing. So there's this concept that John, when you think about yourself today, you think about yourself in first person. When you think about future, John, you think about yourself in third person. And there's academic literature to help us understand that the way that you think about yourself in the future is actually as a completely different human being, right? Future John is like somebody you would pass on the street. I saw John, but I don't really know John. I don't really care about John, right? So even though you say you tell me that you care about future John, John in 30 days and 60 days, that's going to work out. That's going to save more money. There's a complete disconnect there because you don't actually psychologically think about that John as the same John as today, right? And we have a really hard time with understanding what our future selves will and won't do because we don't really completely grasp how distance, time distance affects ourselves as we move into the future. And then also when we're taking that action, the environment that we're going to be in. So there's a lot more that kind of goes into that, but those are just two key insights into why these types of things happen. Wow. So this, I I never thought about that, right? When I think about goals I want to set, I don't necessarily associate myself with that person who's going to be the benefactor or non-benefactor of these things in the future. And this third person element, that's really fascinating. So tying this together with the future of behavioral science and product design, right? What does this look like in your viewpoint? So I I think a 
an in, a complete intersection between behavioral science and product design. You know, and it's interesting back to my point about the savings piece. AARP did this actual study where before they would ask people to opt into a retirement account, they would show this augmented reality version of themselves of how they would look in 30 or 40 years to close that future self gap. And when they did wow. that, what they found was savings rate actually increased, right? Because all of a sudden you could see future John, you could empathize with future John. But it's interesting because I've, I've dug into you know sociology and anthropology, neuroscience and behavioral science. And there's this gap that exists between a lot of these academic uh, disciplines and the applied side. So this isn't just behavioral science, it's across a lot of these, but beginning to really take all that amazing research that have that exists in academia as it relates to behavioral science and really integrate it into the way that we think about building products, how we build products and how we deploy products. Because at the end of the day, it's gonna make these companies more successful and it's also gonna help their users achieve the types of behaviors and actions that they want to achieve. Incredible, incredible. Taking all this knowledge, uh, uh, very much I'm hearing a growth mindset here, if I could borrow from Carol Dweck for a moment, and how you think about things, identify gaps in the universe and go fill them. Awesome story, Nate, and so much knowledge about behavioral science. And you referenced go check out academia a number of times, but I would argue that it's much more interesting to learn from books because they have stories and help bring these things to life in a much bigger way. I just interviewed Ahmed Siddiqui, who wrote a book about payments, and there's two big books in that space, textbook and his book. It's fascinating, and most people tend to lean towards his book. I think you've got a similar story here for you. So how did the book even enter your radar screen? Yeah, I figured I figured someday future Nate would write a book at some point, but I hadn't got around to it for all the reasons that I just told you. And he did. And, he did. <laughs> <laughs> and Eric actually pinged me on LinkedIn kind of out of the blue when he was first starting the program and said, hey, listen, I'm launching this, this book writing program. Is it something that you would be interested in doing? And I had been looking at behavioral science and product design for a little bit now. And I had this voice in the back of my head, which was my mother, who said, you know, an opportunity presents itself. You take advantage of it. So I said... First thought was, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And then second thought was like, Nate, just, just do it. So I said, yes, I went through the process. It was, it was amazing. And really what was great about the process was it really forced me to really understand and think about these concepts on a much deeper level, right? Because when I'm talking to somebody like you, John, or somebody else that doesn't have a ton of experience in this space, which I'm, I am often doing, right? Being able to really understand how stories can illustrate your point, but being able to talk about it in a way that isn't too jargony, but the person that I'm talking to goes, oh, that's really interesting. I actually, I actually understand this rather than them walking away going, there's a lot of buzzwords, but I don't really know what's going on. So what are all these acronyms? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, it was just a really rewarding, rewarding process for me. It was a, it was an intellectual exercise and it's, it's really fascinating to be able to put something out into the world that's going to be there forever, right? Like my kids and my grandkids are going to be able to pick up this book that I wrote when I was 30, 30, 31 and like read it. And it's also going to be great to say 10 or 15 years from now, all the predictions that I made in the book, <laughs> let's, let's see how accurate those are. So future you, future book. I love it. And right? how do they line up? Eric Custer, of course, is who you're referencing that reached out to on yes. LinkedIn, who runs and built this, founded this whole program with manuscripts and New Degree Press, the Creator Institute, all part of the manuscript journey and publishing journey. Thank you for sharing that. Where did the book in terms of a timeline land with this pivot in your company and then the book? Where was the timeline there? So we were 2000, like 16, 17, we were starting to make the shift and I wrote the book and published in 2020. And we actually had first started doing behavioral science specifically in nonprofits and fundraising. And then basically I said, okay, 
I think there's more of an opportunity here to expand outside of just nonprofits and also look at product design instead of just fundraising. So like as that shift was happening was actually as I was writing the book. So they almost were going kind of toe and toe together. So what I love about that is it's a great illustration of many times people think a book is sort of this output exercise. And in fact, it's a learning journey, I think is what you're yes. trying to share right now. And I really appreciate the fact that you shared it helped going through the process of having to write something down forces yes. you to think about it much more clearly and explain it. Because of course, as you go through this journey, you have an editor checking you week right. every week, like what's this guy writing or author writing and does it make any sense? So I love that that happened. Decoding the why, what has been an unexpected, the book that's been out now, I think about three years, is that right? Yes. What has been an unexpected positive for you? You wrote this book and what happened that you thought, boy, I can't believe the book did this for me. So it's been a great driver of new business for the company. A lot of times when I'm talking to somebody who's interested in what we do, I'll send them a free copy of the book. And we actually landed a couple of significant deals with some very notable clients. For example, Johnson & Johnson, who's a Fortune 50 company. We had prior to that, I don't think we had even worked with a Fortune 500 company. So that was definitely, I would say, more of a business outcome that was amazing. The personal outcome for me was it made me a better storyteller. It made me a much better communicator, right? whether it was writing or in a verbal sense, because that's what I do all day, right? I'm either writing to my colleagues, I'm writing to my employees, I'm writing to my clients, I'm writing on LinkedIn, I'm pitching, I'm talking something. And it, it helps you, and like you said, to really understand the material, but also communicate what it is that you're, that you're thinking about was an unexpected outcome. And just, you know, made me a much better writer. I was like a third of the way through my book and I was talking to my wife about it. She was reading through, she's like, oh, you know, this is, a lot of this is written in the passive voice. Why don't you use the active voice? And I was like, what's the active voice? And you know what the active voice? I looked it up and I started changing my everything I was writing to the active voice. I was like, this sounds so much better. But just because I, I wasn't an English major, like I, you know, I just didn't know a lot of these techniques and, and things. And just I think one of Eric's really great pieces of advice, and you, I notice this now when I read books, is like weaving everything through storytelling just makes all the difference in the world. Right. It's one thing to read Wikipedia or Encyclopedia Britannica and learn about something. Right. It's another thing to see it applied in real time, right? And then we can feel mm -hmm. it and see it. And one of my favorite things about a book and certainly what we teach through this program is help the reader feel like, I always like to right. say, help the reader feel like they're sitting there next to you or next to the person that's in the story, right? And that right. only comes to life, I think, through story. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So decoding the why, Nate, what is, what is the key message here you're trying to get out to the world? The key message is that to build effective products, we first and foremost need to understand what drives human behavior because all of these products at their core are human experiences. And if you don't understand the human experiences, you're just going to fall, fall short. So well put. And maybe there's some Eric Reese lean startup thought in here as well, right? When you build something, build, measure, learn, and continue to learn from it. And it certainly sounds like you've taken that approach and been incredibly successful with it. What would you say to somebody who's thinking about maybe writing a book out there, Nate? And, and what, what might they know about your journey? I would say join Eric's program. <laughs> I think that I would just don't try to get overwhelmed with the thought of actually publishing your book, right? Give yourself this, this goal of something much first and foremost, shorter and attainable, right? Just, but I'm just going to email Eric. Or I'm going to go on the website and sign up for him. Like I'm going to commit to at least, you know, starting the program, like just get the wheels going, just get moving. Cause I think if you think about like publishing a book, 
that that thought can be very overwhelming, right? So good outcome, nice outcome. I'm sure you'll get there, but like first and foremost is focus on what is the what does the first down marker look like and how do I hit that first down marker first? Football analogy, love it. Mm-hmm. But it's a great point, right? And so much of a book is about building blocks. When I wrote my book, I had so many and I started promoting it on social media and things like this. I had friends I hadn't talked to in one, three, five, 10, 15, the record 20 years who sent me notes yeah. and saying, oh my gosh, you're writing a book. That's amazing. I've been writing a book for five years and I'm still on chapter two. Right. <laughs> and what people don't realize is, and you just laid it out so brilliantly, people think they write a book from page one to page 250. And that's not the case at all. It's all about building blocks and really getting an idea of what your thesis is about. And that's very much what, what does coach do in this program. If people want to learn more about that, visit the creator.institute cohort start every four months. The next one will be this fall in September. Thank you for sharing that. So decoding the why it is available wherever you buy books online, Amazon, it continues to be a top seller. It earned bestseller status when it first came out and continues to get great attraction. Nate, if people want to learn more about you and your company, where might they go to look? Definitely. So you can go to creativescience.co.com.co. There's a newsletter that I have there. You can sign up for that. Also, find me on LinkedIn, follow me on LinkedIn. I'm always putting thoughts out on LinkedIn and then feel free to connect with me and shoot me a message on LinkedIn. You can also just shoot me an email, nate at creativescience.co, whether it's behavioral science related, product related, book related, anything related, shoot me a message. I'm always happy to happy to jam. Anything related. I love that. I mean, behavioral science. Wow. This has been a big wave call for me and how we oftentimes think, dare I say incorrectly about how to grow our businesses, right? Try to come mm-hmm. up with some feature and then sort of what's that old saying? Solution seeking a problem, something like that. Yes. Right. And we do it in reverse. And in fact, your work and, and results have proven absolutely otherwise. Love that story. Thank you for sharing that, sharing this whole story with us today, Nate, and educating me and our listeners about behavioral science and your book, Decoding the Why. Anything we didn't get to, you'd like to share with our listeners today? I'm just writing that down, solution seeking the problem, because I love that framing, by the way. So thank the, you. The other key thing, and we, we sort of hit on it, but I think it's it's it words a fine point, is that the thesis of my book, and it, it, like, it didn't come about until sort of like midway through, right? Like what we did was we just started, I just started interviewing, putting people and just putting a bunch of thoughts on paper. And then eventually it sort of take, takes form. And the analogy I always give, you ever watch, it's called Bob Ross, I think, was the, remember the painter guy? Happy little trees, come on. Yes. <laughs> and he sits there, he just starts painting, right? And he paints a little here, he paints a little here, and, he paints, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this thing is actually starting to come something, but he doesn't start out saying, this is what I'm going to paint. He just kind of starts, and it's the same thing with writing a book. It's just like, write a little here, write a little here, interview a little here, and then eventually, like, it starts to take form by the momentum, not because you sat down, you said, this is what I'm going to create. I love the, I mean, any Bob Ross story is a win for me. I could tell right. you that that was a show I watched all the time growing up as a kid. And it's still on PBS, which is amazing, right. but right. that's it. That's the building. Like books are like the biggest term paper you've ever written in a very good way. It's your book, right. it's your topic. And you get to turn all these learnings into stories and learn as you go. And, you know, so many pivots along the way. And I love that you didn't have your thesis worked out right away. So many times people come to the program and think, oh, I, I sort of have an idea, but it's not worked out perfectly. And it's very frustrating to not be there. And it's part of the process. So thank you right. for sharing that. As I said, Nate's book is available today, wherever you buy books online, still a top seller on Amazon. And if you want to learn more about him, he shared his website and email, reach out. He's happy to talk to you. Nate, great to see you. Thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Don't forget to subscribe to the Creator Community channel on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please write a review and give us a give us five stars. 
I'm your host, John Saunders. This has been another episode of the Creator Community, number five in the alumni episode. Keep moving forward.